The following inscription that you'll hopefully see on the screen was found on the ruins of an old government building. You know, like a Centrelink-type building. But back in the Roman Empire, dated 6 BC. And it goes like this. Just so all you lay waiting, you know, for your government uh, help would line up and read it. This is what you would read in those days. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as saviour, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times in surpassing all the benefactors who precede him. And whereas finally the birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel. Good news concerning him. Therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. How's that for government advertising? This message has been endorsed by the Roman government. That is the gospel according to Rome at that time and place where this gospel is written by Mark and distributed throughout the Roman Empire. So at the time when you have Caesars considering themselves to be gods, their birthday is considered to be the beginning of the gospel, because it was believed that the entry of a new Caesar into the world would change everyone's lives. He will make your life better, supposedly. Hope at last. But now comes to churches, communities, people, this message. And where it says Caesar is the beginning of the gospel, Mark writes first line, first sentence, perhaps the title of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, friends, you can't but think that's extraordinary. That's brave. That's bold. That's the sort of post you put on social media and mightn't last, or that's the kind of thing that in the face of what everyone else wants to believe, that, that even if you don't really believe Caesar's a God, what do you have to say to your friends? What do you have to say around the barbecue or the campfire? Oh, yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm friends with that because... Because if you don't, you become an enemy. In a day and age where it's dangerous to disagree with such propaganda, Mark writes, here is really the good news. In the world of Caesars, in the context of kings who claim divinity, comes this gospel, this good news of a greater king, someone who is real deal divine. But here's the question. In a day and age where you've got Caesar's message, and then you've got Mark's message of Jesus. What do you do with it? In our day and age, right here, right now, 4th of February, 2024, what do you do with the gospel? That message, I think if we put that up on the new GovHub in the center of Bendigo, on the wall, I, don't, I think, I'm not sure if it would last, maybe I could be wrong. 
But people are also not going to believe and not going to say, well, that changes my life. I dare say, look, I'm going out on a limb here. I think we're thankful for our governments. Romans 13 tells us, you know, it's a good thing that they're all there by God's own hand. It's He lets them be there. He is sovereign. But in the end, it doesn't change my life dramatically. As long as they make sure the roads are okay and, and whatever governments do, it doesn't change my life internally. But Mark's gospel, Mark's contention, and when you meet Jesus and you meet him at his word, is that it will, it ought to, and if it doesn't, there's something wrong with us. There's something that we need to reckon with. And we'll see that in Jesus' own preaching in this chapter, in this section. How does the gospel according to Mark affect your life? Well, as we start this series, and the series goes up to Easter, we first need to meet Mark, because you could be saying, if, you, if you're new to the Bible, or you don't really know the Bible that well, who is Mark? Why would I listen to him and his gospel story? Well, Mark is someone that actually, you might not know, I'll be surprising, he writes the first gospel account. So Matthew and Luke and John, they're later. Mark is the first gospel account that we have. Scholars say that he bases most of his material of what we call Q, which is the kind of the first time someone wrote down something. But we know a lot about Mark from the Bible itself. We know this. Mark hung out with the apostles quite a lot. So he's with this crew. Uh, His home, at least his mum's house, you know what it's like growing up when you're still a young adult, but you kind of live with mum. Acts 12, verse 12, Mark is living with mum. He's a young man. And it says in Acts 12, verse 12, uh, that they went to the house of Mary. There's lots of Marys in the Bible, by the way. So this is not, there's not one Mary, one or two. There's lots of Marys, a very common name, like Bruce for us. But they go to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Mark has grown up with the apostles around. He's seen them. He's heard them. And what you notice at Mark's gospel is this, lots of stuff about Peter appears. In fact, Peter is present so much throughout Mark's gospel, it seems that Mark uses Peter's first-hand eyewitness testimony and Peter's preaching for a lot of giving an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark is one of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, synoptic, think synchromesh gearbox. For those my age, or if you're a young person, syncing your phone. Is that a thing still? I don't know. Syncing your contacts. Synoptic means Mark and Matthew and Luke are very similar. Not the same exactly, but very similar because they're three people looking at the same person from different camera angles. And of course, they're going to have a similar story. They're two or three witnesses. That's what two or three witnesses does. It means. John is also similar because it's about Jesus. But John's got a lot more monologue, dialogue from Jesus. And we went through John's gospel last year. And the year before. But Mark is also significant because Mark's gospel asks a very plain question in a very fast paced gospel. I've said this before to reforming at times. Um, if if um, John's gospel with all its monologue and dialogue is kind of like watching Pride and Prejudice, um, you know, like it's just lots of talking. It's talking. If that's what John is like, Mark is more like, for my age, like Die Hard, it's just action, 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 action. In fact, the most common word in Mark's gospel is euthus in Greek. It's immediately what the ESV translates is immediately. It's just like, he just uses it. Like, I remember when I was learning to write stories in year three, and the teacher commented on that 
that I use the word suddenly too much. Because I wanted my stories to be action-packed. Suddenly, suddenly, suddenly. Suddenly he ate breakfast. Suddenly he went to school. Suddenly he got in trouble at school. Suddenly he went home. That kind of thing. That's Mark. But in the ESV, it translates it immediately, 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 immediately. So you're almost like, <laughs> holding your breath. You're like... So when you get to the middle of Mark, that's when he asks his very important yet fast-paced question. We're going to land there just before Easter. That question basically is what you'll see on the screen. It's, who is this? That question gets asked again and again. It gets asked in a boat on a storm. It gets asked again and again. Who is this? Because that's the question you've got to ask. That's the question that will actually change your life. As Mark starts... That tension is here, who is Jesus? And he starts by saying, well, here's a bunch of two or three witnesses to who Jesus is. The first one is the scriptures testify. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. See, when you read these words, you know that this story has to be part of a bigger story. Mark doesn't give us Jesus' birth narrative. doesn't give us the shepherds or the magi. He doesn't give us any of those things. He just goes straight into, here is the adult Jesus. But he does give us the context of Jesus within the whole Bible. He gives us the Old Testament. See, when Isaiah penned those words that we read earlier in our cross-reference reading, he was saying... One day, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is coming, and that promise you'll know it's coming because there's going to be a prophet to announce it's coming. A messenger, and he is John. We see this in verses 4 to 8, that John testifies. And John, in Mark's gospel, he just appears. Like, again, we don't have the backstory of John like you do in other gospels. He just appears. Here is John. The messenger appears. And I tell you what, he's strange looking, isn't he? He looks a bit strange. See, John looks like one of those people that lives on the edge of town kind of guys. You know, like, he wears camel's hair, big leather belt around his waist. But we see it's not because he liked ox shopping. He eats locusts and wild honey. I actually did this once. I was preaching Mark a long time ago at our mother church of St. John's. And I thought I would illustrate the point. We had a locust plague at the time. It was summer. I'm always studying Mark in the summer. And uh, so I went out to my car and scraped off the dead locusts, brought them in, had some honey, put it on it, ate it. It's just like eating prawns with the tails left on, if you want to try that. At the time, by the way, I'm not that weird. Guys, I want to say, I'm weird. I'm not that... At the time in Mildura, they were putting uh, locusts on pizza. It was a delicacy. So, hey, you know, I'm just being normal. He eats locusts and wild honey, but not because he's crazy and not because he's on a gluten-free diet, but because these are all signs to who he is. John is wearing a big advertisement, like a name tag. It says, I'm the prophet you've been waiting for. That's the point of what he's wearing. They should all notice. Goodness me, John, um, like, like you're preaching. You look like... Hang on, it looks like, you know the picture grandma's got in her home, or the drawing, of Elijah? 
we look like Elijah the prophet because we read that in 2 Kings in our Bible. 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 7. In 2 Kings chapter 1, um, there's a whole backstory going on and they're looking for this guy. And, and anyway, they meet him and, and, and the person says, what kind of man was he who came to you and met and said these things? And they said, well, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. He said, ah, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. John looks like Elijah. John looks like a prophet. Why? Because here's the thing about John. We saw this also in Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. Who is John? John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the last of a line of men who have stood up and said, Thus says the Lord. So here we have an Old Testament prophet in a New Testament book. The overlap of those testaments. In fact, it's a joining of one testament to God's grace. And he proclaims a baptism of repentance for what? Forgiveness of sins. And people who know they're sinners, who know their shame and their guilt, and they know that if we were to behold our God, we would not stand. Go to John, and they hear this message, and hearing repentance and baptism doesn't turn them off and say, Oh, I don't like that. Don't get to live how I live and do what I want. I don't get to be authority of my life. They don't do it. You know what they're doing? You see what they're doing? They're going to him in throngs and confessing their sins. They're actually being real. They're being honest before God. I am a sinner. I need forgiving of my sins. To admit that is liberating. Do that publicly and before God is forgiving. And because he's doing this, it's a message that means God is going to do something big now. The Jews of that day, to wash themselves, was to purify themselves. So if you're a Jew and you want to go to temple, you need to wash yourself with water to purify yourself in a certain way. And Gentiles too, although there's a different court for them, but that's what you do if you're a Jew, to go to temple or tabernacle past. But now, look at this, John the baptizer. So, Baptist too the noun for Baptist, can be translated baptizer or washer. That's important. John the washer says, shows, you can't wash yourself. You can't. Just, just having a really good long shower before talking with God does nothing for your sin. The calendar change. That the new thing you're doing, your own resolution, doesn't cleanse you from your sin. You can't do that. You can't save yourself. John's baptism points to this. He will baptize you. He will wash you clean by his Holy Spirit. Do you see his preaching in verse 8? I have baptized you with water, but he'll baptize you. He'll wash you with the Holy Spirit. And John says... Because the one who's coming is so glorious. I'm not even worthy to be a sandal man. 
And here we see in John's little statement about sandals, which I think some, sometimes we can breeze over verses in the Bible and not see the significance of even a, a little phrase like that. Look at that phrase in verse 8. Sorry, verse, not, uh, verse 7. After me comes he who is mighty than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Notice this. What is he saying? The one who's coming is God, yet he is also truly human because he wears sandals. He's truly God who can forgive sin and yet he's going to wear sandals? You mean he's going to be one of us? Come among us? He's going to go down to the Nike shop of the day and buy himself a pair of air sandals? Yes. Because he is God, the God-man. And God himself testifies to this, verses 9 to 11. So you've only got a little bit of time in Mark's narrative to let that settle in when you get to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, comes up out of the water, heavens tore open, spirit descends on like a dove, and the voice from heaven, you're my beloved son with human well pleased. Jesus gets baptized. Now, why? Is it to confess his sins? No. He doesn't need to get washed and have forgiveness of sins. Why does Jesus get baptized? Because just like he wears sandals, like you and I wear, the sandals of our day, he comes to identify with sinners. Jesus himself will later say in Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't come as a spirit. He doesn't reveal himself in a burning bush. He comes, behold our God, he is a man. He comes humbly. And all that stuff we've been learning from last year in Genesis, which we'll get back to this year, everything of sin, flesh, the devil, all the stuff that warps our hearts and our actions and wrecks our relationships, Jesus has come to rescue us from it. He's baptized. And then verse 12, immediately... He is driven out into the wilderness. Just after we see this Trinitarian moment of the triune God pointing to who this is. This is God, my beloved Son, God the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in that moment. And then the Spirit immediately drives him out, verse 12, into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? He's tempted. It's interesting when you see the hopes humanity puts up for our rescue. It's easy to see how much people are enamored with that. We follow our influences, our thought leaders, our heroes, our presidents and prime ministers and premiers, whoever it is. Sometimes they're our friends. And we think, that person will make my life better. Of course, we know the entry of Caesar into the world did not put an end to war and can't fulfill my hopes. But we secretly believe that this person, they're right. They're, they're, they're the ones that have got it right. We'll follow them. 
But friends, we soon see, of course, whether it be a president, a prime minister, a premier, a thought leader, an influencer, a famous person, even, even Christian leaders. If we rely upon that person as our moral compass or even secretly as king or God, that will disappoint us and ultimately devastate and destroy us. Because all of us fail when it comes to temptation. All of us. Every single one. Look at Jesus. Here is the perfect one. Satan starts to tempt him. We see in that wilderness. And Satan, of course, is a creature. We easily elevate him too high. We make it out like there's some sort of dualism in heaven between God and Satan. Who's going to win? I don't know. Better get on God's side and join his army. Pick up a sword and fight and then we'll make sure God wins. That is false. There's no dualism. God is not like, oh, goodness, I did not see that coming from Satan. He's so wily. No. Satan is not equal to God. He would like you to believe he is. He is a mere creature, like you and me, though different, a fallen angel, a shapeshifter. We read he can even clothe himself to look like an angel of light. He can make himself look like a serpent in a garden. He can make himself look like different things to different cultures that fear different things. If you live in a culture, I was born in Africa, if you live in a culture where you believe that the demons are in the trees and the, in the bone of the witch doctor, then Satan will shape-shift to control and influence the society that way. But if you, believe, if you live in the West and you live in Australia and you don't believe in that nonsense stuff, I don't believe in Satan anymore because I don't believe any bone pointing can do anything to me. You know, I'm going to live for money and myself and do whatever I want. Well, Satan's pretty good at shape-shifting into that God too. But he's just a creature. He's a fallen angel who did not just fall out with God. Satan's not just in conflict with God. He lives in bitter rebellion against God. Satan is the greatest influencer of humanity. Even to this day, he's very active. Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Martin Luther, the reformer, said he is prowling around like a lion, but because of the cross, he's a gummy lion. His teeth have been pulled out, but he still roars. He can still deceive. And Satan wants to win against God. Now, what would be a game plan? He thinks, because he's so proud, so arrogant, he thinks he's right. Satan is the most self-justifying, self-righteous, never admits wrong in person in his, you, could, you could meet. He thinks he's so, so he's so arrogant to believe his own stuff, his own junk, his own lies. He is so arrogant to believe I could have served God. And he fights that to the end, right? So if, what is he going to do to attack God? He has to attack the gospel. That is the point of friction. And so here we see Jesus being tempted in every way, even as wild animals are all around Jesus. Literally, it's the camping trip from hell. 
but Jesus does not fall into temptation. For the Spirit is with him, he's surrounded by wild animals, but he's also, he is the one who will not fail. He will not fail for those who do. Jesus' perfect obedience is a doctrine to hold on to and believe for your own salvation. Friends, this is a point of doctrine that actually changes your life. You need to hold on to the fact that when you fail, Jesus never did. When you fall into temptation, and you do, and you have done, and you will, he never did. Hold on to his perfect obedience for you. And God is well pleased with him. Even as he's thrown into trials and temptations, God is well pleased for him. Now, what does that mean for you and I, Reforming Church? See this. If Jesus, who is perfect and does not sin, goes through such trials like that, and he's yet so loved and delighted in by God, that means his trials and temptation cannot be a reflection of what God thinks of him. See, what happens with us? We go through a bad time and we start thinking, look, I've been there. I've felt this. Maybe this is going on because God is not pleased with me. I could trust in Jesus and I want to repent of my sins. What else sin is there? Please show me, Lord. Why is this happening? Maybe you think that God is punishing you, but get this. You can be Jesus and go through trials. Satan tempts so that you will fall. God tests so that you will stand fast and hold and trust in him. Notice that Satan tempts you so you go down. God tests you so that you are encouraged to look up. And Satan's work, what is he trying to do? He is trying to discredit Jesus. Right then. But even now. How is Satan going to stop you meeting Jesus right now? By not listening to Jesus' word. By not believing it. By not letting it change your heart inwardly and he has a whole bunch of crafty schemes for that doesn't he i've felt them in my own temptation this is don't listen to this it's boring it's silly the world my friends don't believe this why would you listen to jesus i've got such better things to do i should be snapchatting my friends right now What difference does this make anyway? I come here for the coffee. There's a whole bunch of other things we could think that even accidentally, and I want to tell you, friends, I've fought all those things over my life in church, where we start to devalue, not engage with, cherish the word of the gospel of Christ. And when I'm in that place, let me tell you, when I start to let those whispers take hold, that is a dangerous place for my life. Because then you'll find me in trial and temptation, raging against God rather than praying and asking for help. You'll find me in all sorts of places thinking I'm a big more of a deal than I actually am. I'm not a big deal at all. You'll find me doing all sorts of things because I haven't actually heard God's word and hear Jesus preaches himself God's word. In the last verses of this episode, notice this. 
This is what Satan doesn't want you to hear. This is what Satan attacks most. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the core of Jesus' preaching throughout Mark's gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word repent is not often used in our world, is it? And it's never enough used in the Christian world, in the church. It's never enough used in my life. But it's so good. As an experience, as a Christian experience to repent. And as you can see, it's a central message of Jesus preaching. What does repentance mean? I think it's a bad rap, unfortunately, because we feel like it's dour and austere and severe. And why would I do that? Because it doesn't sound very good at all. But that's what the devil wants you to think repentance is about. The devil wants you to think that repentance is this awful experience of me having to admit wrong. And I don't want to do that because that just sounds terrible and I'm always right. Now, friends... It's hot. And I'm going to use an old story illustration. It is in my notes. This is not just something it's, it, it is here. I want to tell an old story that I've told before reforming. So if you're new, you get to hear it the first time. Yay. But if you've been around a while, you go, I know the end of this story. But this story I'm going to tell, a bit of a brain break. It is hot. I want to tell a story of my own stupidity. I'm going to tell a story of my own need to repent. And this story illustrates what repentance is and what it is not. This is a real story. It'll make sense. I was 25 years old and my friend Steve and I were driving home from Canberra one night. So we used to live in Wagga, Southern New South Wales. It's two and a half hours from Canberra. Went to a conference. I was driving my old car. Steve next to me in the passenger seat. It's nighttime. So we're driving north in Canberra. If you've ever been to Canberra, the city is one big roundabout, right? Basically. It's a bit confusing. Not trying to make excuses. We're driving north in Canberra, cruising along. It's about 8 o'clock at night. And Steve says, Russ, are going the wrong way. This is before GPS. I said, oh, no worries. Um, I'll find a, a turn. We'll, we'll go back in a different direction. And, and I often, like, I need GPS, like in cities particularly, I get lost. Just give me a paddock in the sun and I'm fine. I oh, know, I get lost. Talk to Amy. I'm very, anyway. And then he says calmly, no, Russ, we're going the wrong way. I said, yeah, it's fine. I'll just, you know, I'll get to the traffic lights. I'll find a spot. We'll turn around and we'll go the other direction. We'll go south. And then he turns to me and with this scream of panic says, and you just might even turn me down. Russ, we're going the wrong way. And I looked at him and I looked up and there are car lights in multiple lanes coming towards us. You see, what had happened was in Canberra, there's a, there's a, a big drive that goes north and there's a huge strip of grass. It's very confusing between the two lanes of traffic. 
And I had turned right to go north, but I hadn't gone all the way across to the left-hand lanes. I had driven into the right-hand lanes and was driving into oncoming traffic. And so, what did I need to do? Turn around. Go the other way. Do as Steve said. So we did. I walked the wheel and that little Telstar with this little, I don't know, 1.6 or whatever it was engine was like, the sewing machine engine was like, and I was like the, you know, the cop movies from the Hollywood from the eighties, like everything was squealing. Pull up, I'm driving this way and I'm like, <laughs> and I pull into a drive of a hotel on the street. I pull up, pull up to a halt. And Steve turns to me and says, if you don't use that for a sermon illustration, I will. Well, because it's about me, and maybe he, he, he's a he's a pastor in Canberra now. <laughs> Great place to be. Maybe, but because it's about me, uh, self-deprecating, I use that one to illustrate repentance. It's my own foolishness, my own stupidity. But what is repentance not? Based on that story, what would repentance not be? See, repentance is not, keep going. Don't acknowledge my need to change course at all. I've heard you. I'm going to keep going. That's not repentance, is it? Obviously. But also repentance is not this. Repentance is not, I'll just change lanes and I'll turn a little bit and pretend I've heard the call to repent and that's my response. I'll duck and weave. That's not repentance either. What is repentance, friends? It is an absolute, has to be, turn around, do a 180 and go in the other direction. It is to turn to the place of safety. That is repentance, to turn to the safe place. But the scriptures illuminate repentance even better than my dumb story. First Thessalonians, Paul writes in that letter, we were there a couple of years ago, he says this, how you, this is repentance, you Christians turned to God from idols. Notice this, it's not you turn from idols first. Repentance is not, I just got to deal with my stuff, my junk, clean up my life, then God will be pleased with me. No, no, no. Here is your junk, your sin, your stuff, and you get it all, and you don't have to hide from God because he sees anyway. He's every conversation. He's at every barbecue. He's at every campfire. He's in every closed closet, doorway, hallway, your bedroom, wherever you are. He sees everything in your life. You can't hide it from him and go, ah, it's not here. I was going to sit on it. It's not here. You can't do that. He sees it anyway. So what should you do? What can you do? Here's the joy. You get your sin that he already sees, knows your guilt and shame, and you turn to him with it and say, here it is. And what does he do? Forgives you. Washes you. Cleanses you. Because Jesus Christ is the safe one to turn to. Jesus Christ is the safest person in the universe to turn to with your sin. And when you know that, you want to repent every day. You couldn't get enough of it. You'd be like, i got some more sin. Yay, I'm going to take it to Jesus. I get to turn to Jesus with my sin. No one else gets to do that if they don't know Jesus, but I do. I get to go to Jesus with my sin. Rejoice. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. He wrote 95 Thesis, and if you're, if you're not familiar with Martin Luther, not Martin Luther, Junior King, but the reformer 500 years ago, 
He wrote 95 Things for Debate to the Roman Catholic Church. The first one of these 95 theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Not just, I'm sorry for that little thing. But as in, why would you need to cover your sin before God? Get the whole thing out and go to him now. He's waiting for you just to repent. And notice this in the scriptures. Every time you see repentance, what follows repentance in the human experience? You know what it is? Rejoicing. Why do Christians sing? Because we always have four songs. At this church, anyway. We always sing hymns, or we always sing songs, or psalms, or spiritual songs. What? Why do we do that? Because it's good order. Well, it is, and we Presbyterians love good order. But why do we do that? Because we're rejoicing that we get to repent and be saved. Goodness, if that doesn't make you sing, maybe go to your doctor and get a heart check. Because now our spiritual hearts are renewed. Turn to Jesus with your sin and believe in him. In Acts 3, Peter preaches this. He says, repent so the times of refreshing may come. Do you see the opportunity? Repentance is a way out of bitterness. It's the opening of windows on a cool breeze to come in on a hot February night. Repentance is refreshing. It is rejoicing. It is central to the gospel. It's good news. You get to repent and believe in Jesus because Jesus is that gospel. He is good news. Jesus entered into your world of mess. He doesn't see your sin and go, oh, that looks awful. I am not touching that. Jesus does not see you and go, I don't, I don't want to go near you as far as I can see you. No, he comes down, puts sandals on, and then viscerally goes to a cross and takes the shame and guilt that's yours so before God, he takes on his shoulders. And sinners like us, well, practice sinners, can now practice repentance and turn to Jesus so that God himself will rule and reform our hearts. When you realize that, friends, the trustworthy saying we say at church is true, isn't it? I'm often wrong. I am. Get to know me. I'm always weak. Absolutely. And yet I'm always welcome with Jesus. Because when you can admit wrong and weakness, that is where you stand in the place of amazing grace. Jesus Christ. When you're feeling the weight of guilt that guts your assurance and hope, turn to Jesus. He forgives you. He washes you. When you have just fallen into temptation, perhaps the same fall again, and shame overwhelms you. Repent and rejoice now that you can believe in Jesus. He is gospel. He's good news. So that you don't have to own shame, but be free in Jesus' name. You see how this will actually change your life? It'll change how you relate to God. You realize how he looks at you through Christ? That changes you. It liberates you. It'll change how you live daily repenting and daily rejoicing. Who is this? Friends, here's good news. 
Let's pray in his name. And can it be that I should gain an interest in this Saviour's blood? How God and Father of our Lord, we have just now met Jesus in your word to us. You sent your beloved Son into the world and he broke into our world to rescue broken people like us who need to repent and believe. And we are thankful and we want to be prayerful when we know that sin, that guilt, that shame. Help us to go quickly to you, repenting in prayer, rejoicing in song. When we resist that, when we feel that temptation to self-justify, be self-righteous, to say we're not wrong, help us to examine ourselves and look and see how we can take everything, even the hidden sins of our hearts, to Jesus. Thank you for the testimonies we've just now met to who Jesus is, and we pray that by your Spirit, we will recognize him as King and repent and believe and rejoice and live for him. We pray this as we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in that Saviour's blood. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing.